Book eleven, chapters ten through twenty two of the City of God. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Darren L. Slider, www.logoslibrary.org. The City of God by St. Augustine of Hippo, Book eleven, chapter ten. There is, accordingly, a good which is alone simple, and therefore alone unchangeable, and this is God. By this good have all others been created, but not simple, and therefore not unchangeable. Created, I say, that is, made, not begotten. For that which is begotten of the simple good is simple as itself, and the same as itself. These two we call the Father and the Son, and both together with the Holy Spirit are one God, and to this Spirit the epithet holy is in Scripture, as it were, appropriated. And he is another than the Father and the Son, for he is neither the Father nor the Son. I say another, not another thing, because he is equally with them the simple good, unchangeable, and co-eternal. And this Trinity is one God, and none the less simple, because a Trinity. For we do not say that the nature of the good is simple because the Father alone possesses it, or the Son alone, or the Holy Ghost alone. Nor do we say, with the Sabellian heretics, that it is only nominally a trinity, and has no real distinction of persons. But we say it is simple because it is what it has, with the exception of the relation of the persons to one another. For in regard to this relation, it is true that the Father has a Son, and yet is not himself the Son, and the Son has a Father, and is not himself the Father. But as regards himself, irrespective of relation to the other, each is what he has. Thus he is in himself living, for he has life, and is himself the life which he has. It is for this reason, then, that the nature of the Trinity is called simple, because it has not anything which it can lose, and because it is not one thing, and its contents another, as a cup and the liquor, or a body and its color, or the air and the light or heat of it, or a mind and its wisdom. For none of these is what it has. The cup is not liquor, nor the body color, nor the air light and heat, nor the mind wisdom and hence they can be deprived of what they have, and can be turned or changed into other qualities and states, so that the cup may be emptied of the liquid of which it is full, the body be discolored, the air darken, the mind grow silly. The incorruptible body which is promised to the saints in the resurrection cannot indeed lose its quality of incorruption, but the bodily substance and the quality of incorruption are not the same thing. For the quality of incorruption resides entire in each several part, not greater in one and less in another, for no part is more incorruptible than another. The body indeed is itself greater in whole than in part, and one part of it is larger, another smaller, yet is not the larger more incorruptible than the smaller. The body, then, which is not in each of its parts a whole body, is one thing, Incorruptibility, which is throughout complete, is another thing. For every part of the incorruptible body, however unequal to the rest otherwise, is equally incorrupt. For the hand, for example, is not more incorrupt than the finger, because it is larger than the finger. So, though finger and hand are unequal, their incorruptibility is equal. Thus, although incorruptibility is inseparable from an incorruptible body, yet the substance of the body is one thing, the quality of incorruption another, and therefore the body is not what it has. 
The soul itself, too, though it always be wise, as it will be eternally when it is redeemed, will be so by participating in the unchangeable wisdom, which it is not. For though the air be never robbed of the light that is shed abroad in it, it is not on that account the same thing as the light. I do not mean that the soul is air, as has been supposed by some who could not conceive a spiritual nature, but with much dissimilarity the two things have a kind of likeness, which makes it suitable to say that the immaterial soul is illumined with the immaterial light of the simple wisdom of God, as the material air is irradiated with material light, and that, as the air, when deprived of this light, grows dark, for material darkness is nothing else than air wanting light, so the soul, deprived of the light of wisdom grows dark. According to this, then, those things which are essentially and truly divine are called simple, because in them quality and substance are identical, and because they are divine, or wise, or blessed in themselves, and without extraneous supplement. In holy scripture, it is true, the spirit of wisdom is called manifold, because it contains many things in it. But what it contains, it also is, and it, being one, is all these things. For neither are there many wisdoms, but one, in which are untold and infinite treasures of things intellectual, wherein are all invisible and unchangeable reasons of things visible and changeable which were created by it. For God made nothing unwittingly, not even a human workman can be said to do so. But if he knew all that he made, he made only those things which he had known, whence flows a very striking but true conclusion that this world could not be known to us unless it existed, but could not have existed unless it had been known to God. CHAPTER Eleven. And since these things are so, those spirits whom we call angels were never at any time or in any way darkness, but, as soon as they were made, were made light. Yet they were not so created, in order that they might exist and live in any way whatever, but were enlightened that they might live wisely and blessedly. Some of them, having turned away from this light, have not won this wise and blessed life, which is certainly eternal, and accompanied with the sure confidence of its eternity, but they have still the life of reason, though darkened with folly, and this they cannot lose even if they would. But who can determine to what extent they were partakers of that wisdom before they fell? And how shall we say that they participated in it equally with those who through it are truly and fully blessed, resting in a true certainty of eternal felicity? For if they had equally participated in this true knowledge, then the evil angels would have remained eternally blessed equally with the good, because they were equally expectant of it. For though a life be never so long, it cannot be truly called eternal if it is destined to have an end. For it is called life inasmuch as it is lived, but eternal because it has no end. Wherefore, although everything eternal is not therefore blessed, for hell-fire is eternal, yet if no life can be truly and perfectly blessed except it be eternal, the life of these angels was not blessed, for it was doomed to end, and therefore not eternal, whether they knew it or not. In the one case fear, in the other ignorance, prevented them from being blessed. And even if their ignorance was not so great as to breed in them a wholly false expectation, but left them wavering in uncertainty whether their good would be eternal, or would some time terminate, this very doubt concerning so grand a destiny was incompatible with the plenitude of blessedness which we believe the holy angels enjoyed. For we do not so narrow and restrict the application of the term blessedness as to apply it to God only, though doubtless he is so truly blessed that greater blessedness cannot be, and, in 
comparison of his blessedness, what is that of the angels, though, according to their capacity, they be perfectly blessed? Chapter 12 And the angels are not the only members of the rational and intellectual creation whom we call blessed. For who will take upon him to deny that those first men in paradise were blessed previously to sin, although they were uncertain how long their blessedness was to last, and whether it would be eternal, and eternal it would have been had they not sinned? Who, I say, will do so, seeing that even now we not unbecomingly call those blessed whom we see leading a righteous and holy life, in hope of immortality, who have no harrowing remorse of conscience, but obtain readily divine remission of the sins of their present infirmity? These, though they are certain that they shall be rewarded if they persevere, are not certain that they will persevere. For what man can know that he will persevere to the end in the exercise and increase of grace, unless he has been certified by some revelation from him, who in his just and secret judgment, while he deceives none, informs few regarding this matter? Accordingly, so far as present comfort goes, the first man in paradise was more blessed than any just man in his insecure state. But as regards the hope of future good, every man who not merely supposes, but certainly knows that he shall eternally enjoy the Most High God in the company of the angels, and beyond the reach of ill, this man, no matter what bodily torments afflict him, is more blessed than was he who, even in that great felicity of paradise, was uncertain of his fate. CHAPTER Thirteen. From all this it will readily occur to any one that the blessedness which an intelligent being desires as its legitimate object results from a combination of these two things, namely, that it uninterruptedly enjoy the unchangeable good, which is God, and that it be delivered from all dubiety, and know certainly that it shall eternally abide in the same enjoyment. That it is so with the angels of light we piously believe, but that the fallen angels, who by their own default lost that light, did not enjoy this blessedness even before they sinned, reason bids us conclude. Yet if their life was of any duration before they fell, we must allow them a blessedness of some kind, though not that which is accompanied with foresight. Or, if it seems hard to believe that, when the angels were created, some were created in ignorance either of their perseverance or their fall, while others were most certainly assured of the eternity of their felicity, if it is hard to believe that they were not all from the beginning on an equal footing, until these who are now evil did of their own free will fall away from the light of goodness, certainly it is much harder to believe that the holy angels are now uncertain of their eternal blessedness, and do not know regarding themselves as much as we have been able to gather regarding them from the holy scriptures. For what Catholic Christian does not know that no new devil will ever arise among the good angels, as he knows that this present devil will never again return into the fellowship? of the good. For the truth in the gospel promises to the saints and the faithful that they will be equal to the angels of God, and it has also promised them that they will go away into life eternal. But if we are certain that we shall never lapse from eternal felicity, while they are not certain, then we shall not be their equals, but their superiors. But as the truth never deceives, and as we shall be their equals, they must be certain of their blessedness. And because the evil angels could not be certain of that, since their blessedness was destined to come to an end, it follows either that the angels were unequal, or that, if equal, the good angels were assured of the eternity of their blessedness after the perdition of the others. 
unless possibly someone may say that the words of the Lord about the devil, he was a murderer from the beginning, and abode not in the truth, are to be understood as if he was not only a murderer from the beginning of the human race, when man whom he could kill by his deceit was made, but also that he did not abide in the truth from the time of his own creation, and was accordingly never blessed with the holy angels, but refused to submit to his creator, and proudly exalted as if in a private lordship of his own, and was thus deceived and deceiving. For the dominion of the Almighty cannot be eluded, and he who will not piously submit himself to things as they are, proudly feigns and mocks himself with a state of things that does not exist. So that what the blessed Apostle John says thus becomes intelligible, the devil sinneth from the beginning. That is, from the time he was created he refused righteousness, which none but a will piously subject to God can enjoy. Whoever adopts this opinion at least disagrees with those heretics the Manichees, and with any other pestilential sect that may suppose that the devil has derived from some adverse evil principle a nature proper to himself. These persons are so befooled by error, that, although they acknowledge with ourselves the authority of the Gospels, they do not notice that the Lord did not say, The devil was naturally a stranger to the truth, but the devil abode not in the truth, by which he meant us to understand that he had fallen from the truth, in which, if he had abode, he would have become a partaker of it, and have remained in blessedness along with the holy angels. CHAPTER fourteen. Moreover, as if we had been inquiring why the devil did not abide in the truth, our Lord subjoins the reason, saying, Because the truth is not in him. Now it would be in him, had he abode in it. But the phraseology is unusual. For as the words stand, he abode not in the truth, because the truth is not in him, it seems as if the truth's not being in him were the cause of his not abiding in it, whereas his not abiding in the truth is rather the cause of its not being in him. The same form of speech is found in the psalm. I have called upon thee, for thou hast heard me, O God. Where we should expect it to be said, Thou hast heard me, O God, for I have called upon thee. But when he had said, I have called, then, as if someone were seeking proof of this, he demonstrates the effectual earnestness of his prayer by the effect of God's hearing it, as if he had said, The proof that I have prayed is that thou hast heard me. CHAPTER fifteen. As for what John says about the devil, the devil sinneth from the beginning, they who suppose it is meant hereby that the devil was made with a sinful nature misunderstand it, for if sin be natural, it is not sin at all. And how do they answer the prophetic proofs, either what Isaiah says, when he represents the devil under the person of the king of Babylon, How art thou fallen, O Lucifer, son of the morning? Or what Ezekiel says, Thou hast been in Eden, the garden of God, every precious stone was thy covering, where it is meant that he was some time without sin, for a little after it is still more explicitly said, Thou wast perfect in thy ways. And if these passages cannot well be otherwise interpreted, we must understand by this one also, he abode not in the truth, that he was once in the truth, but did not remain in it. And from this passage, the devil sinneth from the beginning, it is not to be supposed that he sinned from the beginning of his created existence, but from the beginning of his sin, when by his pride he had once commenced to sin. There is a passage, too, in the book of Job, of which the devil is the subject. This is the beginning of the creation of God, which he made to be a sport to his angels, which agrees with the psalm, where it is said, There is that dragon which thou hast made to be a sport therein. 
but these passages are not to lead us to suppose that the devil was originally created to be the sport of the angels, but that he was doomed to this punishment after his sin. His beginning, then, is the handiwork of God, for there is no nature, even among the least and lowest and last of the beasts, which was not the work of him from whom has proceeded all measure, all form, all order, without which nothing can be planned or conceived. How much more, then, is this angelic nature, which surpasses in dignity all else that he has made, the handiwork of the Most High? CHAPTER Sixteen. For among those beings which exist, and which are not of God the Creator's essence, those which have life are ranked above those which have none, those that have the power of generation, or even of desiring, above those which want this faculty. And among things that have life, the sentient are higher than those which have no sensation, or animals are ranked above trees. And among the sentient, the intelligent are above those that have not intelligence, men, for example, above cattle. And among the intelligent, the immortal, such as the angels, above the mortal, such as men. These are the gradations according to the order of nature. But according to the utility each man finds in a thing, there are various standards of value, so that it comes to pass that we prefer some things that have no sensation to some sentient beings. And so strong is this preference, that had we the power we would abolish the latter from nature altogether, whether in ignorance of the place they hold in nature, or, though we knew it, sacrificing them to our own convenience. Who, for example, would not rather have bread in his house than mice, gold than fleas? But there is little to wonder at in this, seeing that even when valued by men themselves, whose nature is certainly of the highest dignity, more is often given for a horse than for a slave, for a jewel than for a maid. Thus the very reason of one contemplating nature prompts very different judgments from those dictated by the necessity of the needy, or the desire of the voluptuous. For the former considers what value a thing in itself has in the scale of creation, while necessity considers how it meets its need. Reason looks for what the mental light will judge to be true, while pleasure looks for what pleasantly titillates the bodily sense. But of such consequence in rational natures is the weight, so to speak, of will and of love, that though in the order of nature angels rank above men, yet by the scale of justice good men are of greater value than bad angels. CHAPTER Seventeen. It is with reference to the nature, then, and not to the wickedness of the devil, that we are to understand these words, This is the beginning of God's handiwork. For without doubt wickedness can be a flaw or vice only where the nature previously was not vitiated. Vice, too, is so contrary to nature that it cannot but damage it. And therefore departure from God would be no vice, unless in a nature whose property it was to abide with God. So that even the wicked will is a strong proof of the goodness of the nature. But God, as he is the supremely good creator of good natures, so is he of evil wills the most just ruler, so that, while they make an ill use of good natures, he makes a good use even of evil wills. Accordingly he caused the devil, good by God's creation, wicked by his own will, to be cast down from his high position, and to become the mockery of his angels, that is, he caused his temptations to benefit those whom he wishes to injure by them. And because God, when he created him, was certainly not ignorant of his future malignity, and foresaw the good which he himself would bring out of this evil, therefore, says the psalm, this Leviathan, whom thou hast made to be a sport therein, that we may see that even while God in his goodness created him good, he yet had already foreseen and arranged how he would make use of him when he became wicked. 
Chapter 18 for God would never have created any, I do not say angel, but even man, whose future wickedness he foreknew, unless he had equally known to what uses in behalf of the good he could turn him, thus embellishing the course of the ages, as it were an exquisite poem set off with antitheses. For what are called antitheses are among the most elegant of the ornaments of speech. They might be called in Latin oppositions, or, to speak more accurately, contrapositions. But this word is not in common use among us, though the Latin, and indeed the languages of all nations, avail themselves of the same ornaments of style. In the second epistle to the Corinthians, the Apostle Paul also makes a graceful use of antithesis, in that place where he says, By the armor of righteousness, on the right hand and on the left, by honor and dishonor, by evil report and good report, as deceivers and yet true, as unknown and yet well known, as dying and behold we live, as chastened and not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing, and yet possessing all things. As then these oppositions of contraries lend beauty to the language, so the beauty of the course of this world is achieved by the opposition of contraries, arranged as it were by an eloquence not of words, but of things. This is quite plainly stated in the book of Ecclesiasticus in this way. Good is set against evil, and life against death, so is the sinner against the godly. So look upon all the works of the Most High, and these are two and two, one against another. Chapter 19 Accordingly, though the obscurity of the divine word has certainly this advantage, that it causes many opinions about the truth to be started and discussed, each reader seeing some fresh meaning in it, yet whatever is said to be meant by an obscure passage should be either confirmed by the testimony of obvious facts, or should be asserted in other and less ambiguous texts. This obscurity is beneficial whether the sense of the author is at last reached after the discussion of many other interpretations, or whether, though that sense remain concealed, other truths are brought out by the discussion of the obscurity. To me it does not seem incongruous with the working of God, if we understand that the angels were created when that first light was made, and that a separation was made between the holy and the unclean angels, when, as is said, God divided the light from the darkness, and God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. For he alone could make this discrimination, who was able also before they fell to foreknow that they would fall, and that being deprived of the light of truth, they would abide in the darkness of pride. For, so far as regards the day and night, with which we are familiar, he commanded those luminaries of heaven, that are obvious to our senses, to divide between the light and the darkness. Let there be, he says, lights in the firmament of the heaven, to divide the day from the night. And shortly after, he says, And God made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day, and the lesser light to rule the night, the stars also. And God set them in the firmament of the heaven, to give light upon the earth, and to rule over the day and over the night, and to divide the light from the darkness. But between that light, which is the holy company of the angels, spiritually radiant with the illumination of the truth, and that opposing darkness, which is the noisome foulness of the spiritual condition of those angels who are turned away from the light of righteousness, only he himself could divide, from whom their wickedness, not of nature but of will, while yet it was future, could not be hidden or uncertain. CHAPTER Twenty. 
Then we must not pass from this passage of Scripture without noticing that when God said, Let there be light, and there was light, it was immediately added, and God saw the light, that it was good. No such expression followed the statement that he separated the light from the darkness, and called the light day, and the darkness night, lest the seal of his approval might seem to be set on such darkness as well as on the light. For when the darkness was not subject of disapprobation, as when it was divided by the heavenly bodies from this light which our eyes discern, the statement that God saw that it was good is inserted not before, but after the division is recorded. And God set them, so runs the passage, in the firmament of the heaven, to give light upon the earth, and to rule over the day and over the night, and to divide the light from the darkness, and God saw that it was good. For he approved of both, because both were sinless. But where God said, Let there be light, and there was light, and God saw the light that it was good, and the narrative goes on, and God divided the light from the darkness, and God called the light day, and the darkness he called night, there was not in this place subjoined the statement, and God saw that it was good, lest both should be designated good, while one of them was evil, not by nature, but by its own fault. And therefore, in this case, the light alone received the approbation of the Creator, while the angelic darkness, though it had been ordained, was yet not approved. CHAPTER Twenty One. For what else is to be understood by that invariable refrain, and God saw that it was good, than the approval of the work in its design, which is the wisdom of God? For certainly God did not in the actual achievement of the work first learn that it was good, but, on the contrary, nothing would have been made had it not first been known by him. While therefore he sees that that is good which, had he not seen it before it was made, would never have been made, it is plain that he is not discovering but teaching that it is good. Plato, indeed, was bold enough to say that when the universe was completed, God was, as it were, elated with joy. And Plato was not so foolish as to mean by this that God was rendered more blessed by the novelty of his creation, but he wished thus to indicate that the work now completed met with its maker's approval, as it had while yet in design. It is not as if the knowledge of God were of various kinds, knowing in different ways things which as yet are not, things which are, and things which have been. For not in our fashion does he look forward to what is future, nor at what is present, nor back upon what is past, but in a manner quite different and far and profoundly remote from our way of thinking. For he does not pass from this to that by transition of thought, but beholds all things with absolute unchangeableness. So that, of those things which emerge in time, the future indeed are not yet, and the present are now, and the past no longer are, but all of these are by him comprehended in his stable and eternal presence. Neither does he see in one fashion by the eye, and another by the mind, for he is not composed of mind and body. Nor does his present knowledge differ from that which it ever was or shall be, for those variations of time, past, present, and future, though they alter our knowledge, do not affect his, with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. Neither is there any growth from thought to thought in the conceptions of him in whose spiritual vision all things which he knows are at once embraced. For as without any movement that time can measure, he himself moves all temporal things, so he knows all times with a knowledge that time cannot measure. And therefore he saw that what he had made was good, when he saw that it was good to make it. And when he saw it made, he had not on that account a twofold nor any way increased knowledge of it, as if he had less knowledge before he made what he saw. 
for certainly he would not be the perfect worker he is, unless his knowledge were so perfect as to receive no addition from his finished works. Wherefore, if the only object had been to inform us who made the light, it had been enough to say, God made the light. And if further information regarding the means by which it was made had been intended, it would have sufficed to say, And God said, Let there be light, and there was light, that we might know not only that God had made the world, but also that he had made it by the word. But because it was right that three leading truths regarding the creature be intimated to us, that is, who made it, by what means, and why, it is written, God said, Let there be light, and there was light, and God saw the light, that it was good. If then we ask who made it, it was God. If by what means, he said, Let it be, and it was. If we ask why he made it, it was good. Neither is there any author more excellent than God, nor any skill more efficacious than the word of God, nor any cause better than that good might be created by the good God. This also Plato has assigned as the most sufficient reason for the creation of the world, that good works might be made by a good God. Whether he read this passage, or perhaps was informed of these things by those who had read them, or by his quick-sighted genius, penetrated to things spiritual and invisible through the things that are created, or was instructed regarding them by those who had discerned them. CHAPTER Twenty Two. This cause, however, of a good creation, namely the goodness of God, this cause, I say, so just and fit, which, when piously and carefully weighed, terminates all the controversies of those who inquire into the origin of the world, has not been recognized by some heretics, because there are, forsooth, many things, such as fire, frost, wild beasts, and so forth, which do not suit but injure this thin-blooded and frail mortality of our flesh, which is, at present, under just punishment. They do not consider how admirable these things are in their own places, how excellent in their own natures, how beautifully adjusted to the rest of creation, and how much grace they contribute to the universe by their own contributions as to a commonwealth, and how serviceable they are even to ourselves if we use them with a the knowledge of their fit adaptations, so that even poisons, which are destructive when used injudiciously, become wholesome and medicinal when used in conformity with their qualities and design just as, on the other hand, those things which give us pleasure, such as food, drink, and the light of the sun, are found to be hurtful when immoderately or unseasonably used. And thus divine providence admonishes us not foolishly to vituperate things, but to investigate their utility with care, and, where our mental capacity or infirmity is at fault, to believe that there is a utility, though hidden, as we have experienced that there were other things which we all but failed to discover. For this concealment of the use of things is itself either an exercise of our humility or a leveling of our pride, for no nature at all is evil, and this is a name for nothing but the want of good. But from things earthly to things heavenly, from the visible to the invisible, there are some things better than others, and for this purpose are they unequal, in order that they might all exist. Now God is in such sort a great worker in great things, that he is not less in little things, for these little things are to be measured not by their own greatness, which does not exist, but by the wisdom of their designer, as in the visible appearance of a man, if one eyebrow be shaved off, how nearly nothing is taken from the body, but how much from the beauty, for that is not constituted by bulk, but by the proportion and arrangement of the members. 
but we do not greatly wonder that persons who suppose that some evil nature has been generated and propagated by a kind of opposing principle proper to it refuse to admit that the cause of the creation was this that the good god produced a good creation for they believe that he was driven to this enterprise of creation by the urgent necessity of repulsing the evil that warred against him, and that he mixed his good nature with the evil for the sake of restraining and conquering it, and that this nature of his, being thus shamefully polluted, and most cruelly oppressed and held captive, he labours to cleanse and deliver it, and with all his pains does not wholly succeed, but such part of it as could not be cleansed from that defilement is to serve as a prison and chain of the conquered and incarcerated enemy me. The Manichaeans would not drivel, or rather rave, in such a style as this, if they believed the nature of God to be, as it is, unchangeable and absolutely incorruptible, and subject to no injury. And if, moreover, they held in Christian sobriety that the soul which has shown itself capable of being altered for the worse by its own will, and of being corrupted by sin, and so of being deprived of the light of eternal truth, that this soul, I say, is not a part of God, nor of the same nature as God, but is created by him, and is far different from its creator. End of Book 11, Chapters 10-22 through 22. Recording by Darren L. Slider, Fort Worth, Texas www.logoslibrary.org